This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. We're back with another episode on COVID-19 and mental health, this time with a few changes to our structure. We are slightly going back to normal, where we have our intro, then a break, and then we get in a guest. As you will have heard with our bonus episodes on Monday, we've been interviewing people in lockdown and have found some really fascinating angles and tips and insights come out of those. So from this episode onwards, you'll notice that change to our format and it will hopefully mean we're able to bring in even more perspectives as we try and decode what is going on and figure out all the ways in which it can affect your mental health, plus what we can do about that to support our mental health as well. So first off, we'll just quickly check in on how we're doing. So Danielle, lockdown, how's it treating you? Hello. How are you? Is that, what I want to say. That was my question. I know. <laughs> How is lockdown treating me? A bit colder today. Not moaning about it, but feeling a bit colder this week. And I've had quite an interesting week, I guess. Last week it was, I had a bit of a lull over the last couple of weeks. I, I, feel, I did feel like I was on the upper bit again. And I took a lot of perspective and a lot of time to reflect when we had our V-Day celebrations and my granddad, my best friend who fought in the World War II, bless him, meant so much to me and it was just nice to be able to sit and have a moment and really reflect and for the kids last week to learn about V-Day and then obviously the whole street and the party. I was trying to keep instilling in them what it was about, why we were celebrating it and all. They were like, does that mean we're having a party? Are we having a party on the street? Is everybody going to be going out? And it was like, oh my God. It's a bit bittersweet because I just got so excited about bunting and flags and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I thought, you know, again, it was sad that all the celebrations that were planned couldn't go ahead. But I felt like the community, like they have done with COVID, did really well to kind of rise together and create some kind of buzz and, you know, remember all of those people that we lost. How weird that we're actually celebrating it while we're in this COVID situation and, and all the resemblances, you know. Mm. what we went through then and and what we're going through now and and some of the similarities and God is all remembering that you know we can pull through this felt really apt. You're right it is interesting the way that the timings worked out when there has been all this comparison to war times with the current measures but no you're right it was lovely to see and particularly with all the focus on Tom Moore that there's been it felt like the the nation was really primed for something to celebrate and feel proud of and, and so there was a real national feeling around it in a way that I don't know if I've ever seen before. This time did feel quite different. Mm. Beyond it being a 75-year anniversary, there was something additional where the nation really needed something to celebrate, perhaps. Yeah, I felt so. I felt like I was in that. Normally, I'd, be, I'd always remember, but I'd be at work. The kids might do something at school they definitely would do something at school. They'd do learning throughout the week and then they would have some kind of party, no doubt. But the fact that I was at home, I mean, you live in an apartment in the city centre and I live in like suburbia. <laughs> well, I don't. It's, it's it's quite a city, actually. I'm only about five miles away. But it feels like my estate is quite leafy and, you know, quite like that. 
and like all on the road there's just been bunting and flags you couldn't have missed it like one of the neighbors in the cul-de-sac even like drew spitfires with chalk on the floor and there's been like flags drawn and really colorful the community really came together our neighbor about 10 doors up had this big music system playing i mean the dj like we were a bit like sack the dj but like a whole mixture of music and everyone was out it was brilliant but you know we maintained the social distancing of course as hard as it is with children as soon as they let out a little bit so hard but felt quite humbling I'm always really pushed to remember because of my family on that side and then also you know discussions with the family on the other side being mixed race and you know often not hearing as much as we should about a lot of the servicemen and women that were brought in from the Caribbean and other countries through what must have been the hardest of conditions with, with knowing what it was like back then I don't think my children I showed them a picture of about eight black servicemen and my daughter, who's nine, was like, did black people fight in the war? <laughs> I was like, my God. Probably an area that we haven't really spoken about much. And to be honest, when I was young, I would have may have, I may have thought the same. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly got a lot better. And even one of the local MPs in Birmingham, Preet Gill, who was the first female Sikh MP in the country, she was part of unveiling a statue honouring the Sikh community's contribution to the Second World War. You know, so it it is good to see more of that being embraced. And similar to yourself, that's been my experience as well, that coming from an Irish background, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I when I was little, I thought, oh, well, you know, our country was neutral, we weren't involved. But there was a lot of support in terms of from a, a practical side as well, you know, in terms of farming, in terms of supporting British supplies of food and things like that. Mm-hmm. And in addition, many, many service people that volunteered. So my grandfather on my dad's side volunteered as an army medic, wasn't obliged to, but, you know, felt mm. the need to wow. to do his bit and to support a neighbouring country wow. and really his healthcare colleagues more globally. And I wonder, in a way, with the nation coming together more and having this this shared struggle of the pandemic to unite us, this seems to be under the same umbrella. And maybe that's where the celebration felt particularly different this year, Mm. that we all have a more united focus. Yeah. Um, So There's something that's affecting everybody. We all know that there's something happening. And I mean, imagine it was six years for them and we're all locked. Lock, you know locked down for eight weeks yeah so it was quite sorry to digress but no no it's it, no I'm really glad you brought it up and it is important because that you're right it did affect everyone you know there was rationing in Ireland you know because yeah. the, the food supplies across the world were affected it wasn't just those countries directly involved for the children I, I made sure that we sat and watched you know a few programs back to back for them to be able to see and get a feel of what it was like because again you know, do we rely on schools to provide a lot of that? You know, I try and just talk to them about things that perhaps I think they don't learn in school. But generally, I they would have come home 100% last week and told me we're doing a project on VE Day. Mummy, did you know this? They would have been spurting out facts. I had to make sure that I kept them kept them grounded and got them to understand, you know, that we're here because of that sacrifice. And that was really really important for me last week I grew up you know with my grandparents with a bunker an air raid shelter in the garden I remember it you're absolutely right it's personal for all of us yeah I've been feeling quite hopeful it does feel like the tide is turning yeah and certainly from a UK perspective I am feeling more positive 
impact, of course, has been the announcements on Sunday from Boris Johnson on how lockdown is going to change over the coming weeks and months. You know what? I think I've remained hopeful because it's a sign that there there is light and there will be changes ahead. Of course, there's been a lot of criticism in terms of vagueness and inconsistencies of how he presented that. Danielle's just got her, her head tilted back in anguish. The yeah. listeners can't see. Absolutely, it has been difficult to wrap our heads around how these messages are changing. And also, the UK is a particularly complex example because we have a certain level of devolution to different governments. So it's up to the devolved parliaments of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland how the lockdown measures are lifted. Mm. They're the ones that have the direct control over that. You know, so that's a real complication and an area where we don't have all of the answers yet. If you're being told in England that your job is one way you could go back to work potentially, well, what if your workplace is in Wales where that advice isn't being given or vice versa? Yeah. You know, what if you're in Wales and you work for a company here? They're expecting you to come back to work, but your own government is saying no. There's all these complications. And and again, we seem kind of united in confusion from, from the coverage <laughs> I've seen so far, uh, even to the extent of a clip that's gone viral from Matt Lucas, which I'll play. So we are saying, don't go to work, go to work. Don't take public transport, go to work, don't go to work. Stay indoors. If you can work from home, go to work. Don't go to work. Go outside. Don't go outside. And uh, and then we will or won't uh, something or other. And even in terms of what was announced, there have already been some changes as well, which, again, is difficult to get your head around. So, for example, Boris Johnson talked about restrictions coming in where people are quarantined who arrive by plane. So people would be quarantined for 14 days from the, the day of arrival, which in many countries has been the case for some time. He said that would be for people arriving from all other countries apart from the Republic of Ireland. We'd assume it's to do with the border and, you know, the fact that if you're not allowed to fly, many people would drive across that border instead. Yeah. But then even since he announced that at 7pm last night, it's since changed that those restrictions won't apply to people arriving from France, basically due to President Macron having a phone call with Boris Johnson and saying, look, you've actually left the EU and yet we're not putting those restrictions in for any EU countries or the UK. So, you know, we're giving you a certain amount of leeway and not imposing this quarantine for people arriving from the UK. Could you not impose that restriction on us? And that's been agreed to. So very quickly, that's already changed off the back of a phone call and, and, you know, and a relationship as opposed to that maybe being based on science. Of course, my question would be, okay, well, it's already changed for France. Are the other world leaders going to now start speaking to Boris and and making Mm -hmm. their pictures? And then the other one that's changed already, or maybe there was a mistake, I'm not sure, was that Dominic Raab has been attempting to clarify to the BBC that, in fact, it's Wednesday when people are expected to start going back to work from certain industries, not Monday, as Boris had said. I know. And so I guess my takeaway would be with things moving so fast and with this being so hard for me to even articulate what the changes are, you know, I I took a load of print screens from watching the news so that I could even discuss this with Danielle, what changes are actually taking place. I guess my more important takeaway would be that right now you've just got to keep watching this develop. 
anything I may say about the new changes could already be different again. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The point that you made, first of all, about feeling hopeful, I thought is right in the the bottom line is we want to see a decrease in the number of deaths that you know and that is happening we're seeing that and that's something to hold on to and be hopeful about imagine if it was still rising and rising and rising and rising and we felt we had no handle on it so I am I'm pleased about that and Boris did say didn't he you know because of your efforts while punching the air that poor air got punched millions and millions of times but for your efforts we are, you know, we've managed to get a handle on it. So that's great. As you said, Bobby, you're absolutely right. Much as we can talk about it now, and this will come out on Thursday, things are changing so quickly. And so to maintain in that moment, just not thinking too far in the head, I think, as we've said, is the message. And it's a great example, as you said, with the, the border quarantine stuff, because all that's just, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's not about fairness, is it? It's about safety. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that has been particularly strange. And whilst I am hopeful from a health point of view, I do worry a bit in terms of the confusion could give rise to a lot of people exploiting the rules. Yeah. So, for example, one of the changes is that you can now go out and exercise, as Boris described it, an unlimited amount of times. And then in further clarification um, from the government since then, that can include, you know, going for a drive, that can include being outside, having a picnic, you know, taking a seat in a local park, as long as you're you're taking the other measures like the two metre distancing, then you can be outside a lot more. In fact, as long as you are coming back home on the same day you left, that's the key restriction to it. But then my mind then goes to, well, does that mean I could be out all day, come back just to, you know, sit in for midnight for a few minutes, and then go back out and, and be outside, you know, 23 plus hours a day. Yeah, that's exactly what it says. I'm trying to give an extreme example. I'm certainly not planning to do that, but that is what people will think of. In the same way, now we can go and meet with one person from another household, as long as it's out in the air, we're not going to anyone's homes, and we're keeping, again, the two-metre rule and other safety measures. But then again, there's a lack of clarity there. Does that mean I could go sit in my local park and have a, a train of friends come in and out to see me? Yeah. You know, as long as we're meeting up one on one, could I, you know, schedule in to meet up with half my friends? And I think like many people, I hear something like that and straight away my mind goes to, oh, which friend do I want to meet? Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, we're social creatures. It's natural that we'll try and find ways to, to be more normal where we're allowed to be. But that could pose a big danger. Absolutely. And as much as we try and be, you know, balanced politically on this show and we supported the government as much as we can in terms of, you know, I banged on at the beginning about how much I wouldn't want to be that person right now making those bloody decisions. Like, you know, it's not easy to, to have to make these decisions, like try to be so diplomatic and really kind of non-judgmental. I feel there's I a butt coming on. There is a big but. I mean, the fact that I came back from Venice at the end of February and we had no measures in the airport, even though Venice had been locked down while we were there, you know, my other half has been like, no, the government is shit. They should have locked us down a lot quicker. Really strong opinions about it. And I've tried to maintain this balance in my house. And even though, <laughs> but this yesterday, I felt Boris had an opportunity to 
really come back to those people that are kind of fighting him a bit. And yeah, it might be hard, but you're absolutely right. What he has said is, basically, you can go out all day. He hasn't said those words, but that's what it means. Unlimited exercise means what? I can go out all day. And you're right, you could have a trade load of people coming to meet you on the park, an hour, then you go, then the next one. Come on, what have you got? Mm-hmm. Then the next one. And my first thought, obviously, most of my friends, my closest friends anyway, we've all got children. So my first thought is, and the kids are dying to see our family friend children, you know, that we're the closest to. And right, I'll go and meet this friend and that friend and we'll have we'll meet with the kids. But the kids can't stay two metres apart for more than 10 minutes. They forget, they struggle, you know, they're six and eight, nine, ten, whatever. Kids can't do it. And I mean, it's hard enough for as adults. You want to give your mate a hug. You know, you want to be close. And so then you think, no, we can't really do that. We can't because it'd be yeah, impossible and it, it. It, You're right. And that gets then even more confusing from like how these decisions are made because you at the moment wouldn't be allowed to do that because it can only be one person, you know, selected to to both leave your kids. If you're a single mom, then you don't have this freedom, for example. But then also your kids can't go play with the other kids, but potentially they'll be going back to school in a few weeks. I mean, that's just uproar. Yeah. And if reception year one and year six. So I was thinking that there may be some kind of case for children who are transitioning so new children into primary so they would be reception year six going into year seven new school and maybe your year 13s or year 11s you know those end beginning and ending of school those key moments there may be a couple of weeks in at the end of term because now everybody I've got a year one child so now I'm thinking well why does my year one child have to go in may have to go in and not my year four child what's going to happen there my friend was like, oh, God, there'll be uproar in my house. The one kid who's got to go in will be like, no, I don't want to go back. Whereas mine, actually, both kind of want to be at school. So, you know, Ella would be a bit like, I want to go. Why do I have to stay at home? It's just caused so many questions. And, you know, and then with regard to mental health, it just throws us into this uncertainty and anxiety. You know, something had to be said and how it would have been said. And I'm not sitting here saying I could have written this speech any better. I mean, I think I could have. But um, you know what I mean, Bobby? I just feel like the restrictions that you said and and then the work thing. Am I wrong to think that there's confusion around if you can't work from home, please go to work? Yeah. But there was nothing around the industries because those places aren't open or are they going to be open, you know? Yeah, it almost becomes like a flow chart then. So I can't work at home, but I also can't go to that workplace. So you, you have to sort of almost do the maths in your head. Yeah. Um, And then there's also the addition of transport as well. So they're discouraging public transport. So uh, one industry that Boris mentioned was construction. And so if you're a builder, maybe you rely on public transport, then do you not go to work? Or do you get a mate to drive you to work, which then you're not meeting the social distancing? I think we're really hitting on here how the more lengthy the restrictions, you know, the more caveats there are the more complicated it is for us to all figure out. And also it's potentially open to different interpretations as well. Yeah. And that's where it gets quite complicated. How do you know, do you prioritise going to work or do you prioritise staying away from public transport? Which one is considered the the right thing? Yeah, absolutely. The more uncertain and the, the rules are, the more grey and up for interpretation the rules are, I think the higher risk. Yeah. 
And of course, this varies across the, the countries in the UK as well, we should say. So yeah, so it's going to be a complicated one to navigate. I certainly hope there's going to be a lot more clarification. Hopefully we can learn from other countries like Spain, where your, your sister is, where it does seem more clear. Even as a foreigner, I can easily get a handle of what's going on in Spain. I'm, I'm not sure if they'd understand what's happening here quite so much. No, she called me this morning when she sends pictures. It just seems a lot more like calm. Obviously, it's a lot less busy. The population is a lot less than ours. But they've been absolutely locked down. No messing about. Couldn't even go out to exercise. All they could do is go to the supermarket and back. And now because of that, they have slowly, I said last week on the podcast, that they've been allowed to dim their exercise time last week. That all went smoothly and seemed to be fine. And now this week they've lifted the lockdown on quite a, a large number of um, cafes and parks. So today she sent us beautiful pictures and it was like, oh, there you are again. Like we always get nice pictures of her because it's, you know, so hot all the time there. And then sent one of herself in a cafe and she said, you know, there are less tables and obviously their culture is sitting outside mm. so that helps but there are less tables and we are two meters away but I am aware that you know the waitress is picking up the glass and then I'm I'm holding the glass and then I'm touching something else but she did say you know we'd seem to be kind of rolling through it quite smoothly we're all abiding by the rules she said if I was in the UK now I'm not quite sure how I'd how I'd be handling what's going on it's pretty difficult to follow the rules when you're unsure what they are. Yes. You know, and even Nicola Sturgeon has said of the new slogan, which uh, isn't being rolled out in Scotland, right. she doesn't understand it. You know, she said, I don't know what stay alert means, so I can't in good conscience. It's she? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially that's what she was saying, that yeah. she couldn't expect other people to abide by a slogan that she herself didn't understand. So uh, stay home has remained the wow. slogan there. I mean, she's not messing about, Nicola Sturgeon, is she? She has just said, no, this is what's going to happen here. But I had not heard that about the slogan. Not just there as well. So actually, England is the only one with the new slogan. Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland are all staying with the previous one. So it's a very strange time. And as someone with family in devolved nations, it's quite mm. weird to think that I'm suddenly living on separate rules. Yeah. It certainly does make us feel less of a united kingdom. And I understand that at times it needs to be, like in Scotland, the, the rate of infection is currently higher. Yeah, so it's a complicated one. But to go back to, I guess, a more hopeful thing that I am pleased to say, we'll look at our stats that we read out each week from Worldometers. And first off, the number of people that are recovered globally who have had a confirmed case of COVID-19 now stands at 1,506,479. Mm. Yeah. So that is continuing to go up and that was an increase of over 350,000 since reading it last week. Brilliant. And also at the same time, the number of cases globally that are considered to be serious or critical remains low at 2%. So whilst things aren't yet getting better in every country... Globally, on average, we are heading in a positive direction. Yeah, it's brilliant. It would almost be exciting if it wasn't so scary and horrific what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then the last part of our intro is, of course, our potential positive. Also links back to what we've been talking about, lifting lockdown. In particular, the opportunities this could present. 
So a few days ago, the Transport Secretary announced that there would be a £2 billion package to encourage more people to commute to work in green ways. So walking, cycling, potentially investing in green travel like electric cars by providing more charging points around cities, alongside more cycle routes across the UK as well. So exciting. Really pleased about that. We've been like a cycling family. We've turned into like four of us out on the bike. So we've never been able to do it before because my youngest child has never been able to cycle properly. And then we've also bought this attachment that you can put on the back of an adult bike that attaches the smallest child's bike. So a stabilizers are lifted up. And so Rhea can sit on her bike that's attached to her dad's bike and he can cycle with her on her own bike on his. Oh, and I'm so cute. on hers. It's cute. The only thing is, it's so, been brilliant. <laughs> so, in summary, you've gone from a ninja family to a cycling family. Yeah, we have, and I love. I've loved it. The weather's been amazing for cycling, and we've always kind of wanted to be able to do it. The only thing is, is you have to navigate the length of this vehicle that you're now driving. So, like, there's been a couple of like bangs, like ants turning a corner, and like, he's got this hole of the bike at the back of his bike, trying to like navigate round corners and bit dangerous so like we're in we're you know we're in like a line at the moment we've only been obviously local because of the, the restrictions but you know you never know maybe now we'll be able to go off and go into a park and and cycle in a bit more of an open area and really enjoy it but I think that's brilliant because I think it's it's and you know it's the summer and it's a great time to try and get people out I mean you walk around the city or rain summer winter <laughs> any all weathers you're out there you'll pop your little hat on if it's a bit cold and I'm like oh it's freezing and he's like no I'll be fine I'll be fine just put my little hat on it's in the jeans I'm hardy oh really is that what it is <laughs> I don't know if it's that but there's certainly a lot of it goes on in my family of just denying poor weather It'll be thunder and lightning and they'll call it a drizzle <laughs> but no so that's really good news isn't it yeah, no, it is really positive. And, and actually, it links to our first ever potential positive we talked about, which was the environment and how, and a lot of that is world travel systems that Ooh. have now, to a large extent, been just placed on pause. So as you say, it's really exciting to see that our government and, and others around the world are trying to capitalise on that. And also there's the, the safety elements as well. If you can be getting people to cycle to work rather than being cooped up in a bus together, that is going to have a positive impact in terms of spread as well. And it's not just in terms of travel. More broadly, we are questioning and reflecting on parts of our society right now. And and could there be better ways to move forward? And so I certainly hope that's the case. You know, we've talked about the certain industries that are frontline. Is now the time for them to get the big pay rise that many of them have needed for a long time? Mm. You know, there are so many ways out of this that are not only positive in terms of us getting past the pandemic, but could be incredibly positive on making a more healthy life. Could it be better work-life balance for more people working at home? One thing I've been talking about recently with friends is, will less people be living in cities? There's already articles coming out that more people are planning to move to the countryside because we're outside walking more. You know, we're we're appreciating mm. nature in a way that perhaps we were too busy to before. Absolutely. Um, and this is even something that Jack, our bonus interview guest from Monday, mentioned off air, that he's hoping with so many people like himself moving back in with family due to the pandemic and potentially people moving outside of the city or working from home, 
Will housing become less competitive in London where he is? Already there's a load more empty homes and perhaps those won't be filled because more people will be working from home or or reevaluating if they want to live in a big city. Mm. Working from home, for example, being one of those flexibilities that will impact, yeah, where people live. You don't need to. People live in, in the city so that they can go to work. Like, it's easier. You're always looking for to live near the nearest train line or the tube line or wherever, you know, where you can drive and get in. You don't want an hour's commute in your car. Right. But when if you're only having to go in one day a week now because your organisation has have realised that, oh, you can, 80% of our workforce can work at home and we can trust them to be pro- productive at home, then, yeah, that's going to really shape the kind of urban city living world, isn't it? And to use that example of London, when I think of people I know that live there, none of them enjoy taking the underground. You know, it's a necessity. They all hate it. And maybe now that the time of reflection, the time of potentially working from home or being off work will be enough for people to reevaluate and think, you know what, I don't want to go back to that. Mm. Being close by, I live right near a train station and I love it, but that's my choice when I want to do it. When you are on that commute every day because you have to, that's when it just becomes, yeah, really hard going. Really, really hard, I can imagine, at times. Well, it was when I used to live in London. But, yeah, so hopefully, I mean, that is a positive. People can look up from their phones and <laughs> for a change. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think we'll all want some time away from our phones after this, to be honest. Like, yeah. I'm hearing a lot of people getting Netflix fatigue. Yeah, 100%. It's yeah. all getting a bit, the novelty's getting a bit. Uh... All right, so we'll we'll wrap up on our intro then and we'll get into our bonus interview as well. Yeah, great. Looking forward to that. This week's guest is Hope Virgo, who's a campaigner. She's a speaker, a lot of the time going around schools in the country, obviously, outside of COVID times. She's been on the podcast twice now uh, for our live episode and also for an episode on abuse, which are some of our best. So definitely check those out if you're looking for more content. This time she'll be talking about how she's finding lockdown, what things she's finding helpful to get through it, and also how the changes are affecting people with eating disorders, something we've we've only really touched on so far. She gives a really in-depth exploration. And yeah, it was just generally lovely to speak to her. I think we came off the call and she said, oh, this is really nice. We should do this again, even not for recording. Yeah, she's just so inspirational that I I find that because she's just so full of life, so bright, so approachable, so connected. I really enjoy it every time we record with Hope. Yeah, it's a great episode, isn't it? I hope the listeners enjoy it. Yeah, she's an absolute gem. And I'm sure it's been said many times before, but you could hardly think of a person more apt to have a name like Hope. I know. (laughs) So we'll get into the lockdown interview with Hope Virgo in a moment. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Hope Virgo and I am a mental health campaigner. So I work all over the country with schools and corporates and hospitals and then do a lot of work with the government looking at eating disorders and diagnosis and a bit more broadly on trying to tackle the stigma that often comes with mental health. My lockdown's been quite up and down, if I'm honest. The first few weeks I found really, really challenging. 
I think predominantly I was worried about work. So a lot of my work got cancelled kind of within the first couple of days, which was just, yeah, I got really stressed about that. And then also for me, kind of like this fear around food. And it was really odd, actually, because in that first week or so, I didn't feel like I was out of control. I think I was in a lot of denial about what was actually happening. But yet from reading the papers and from kind of like looking on social media, I then got this fear around there not being any food available. And I then started to see gradually like these cracks in my recovery coming through and things that I was finding a little bit more challenging and kind of all the coping mechanisms that I had in place to manage my recovery from anorexia. I felt like it started to break a little bit in places. So things around worrying about not being able to get hold of certain foods. And then for me, like exercise. And when they shut my gym, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to manage my recovery if I can't go to the gym? And it was all of this stuff that actually kind of looking back, it wasn't it wasn't as big a deal as I made it out to be. So I definitely like catastrophized it. But I think my general thing with lockdown at the moment is every day is just feels quite different from the day before. And it's a bit like being in this constant roller coaster where I don't know what what mood I'm going to be in from day to day. And I've definitely got my coping strategies in place, but I am finding it harder and I'm finding things harder probably than than I would have beforehand, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And one of the things you shared, I think, very early on that really resonated with me was talking about feeling more self-conscious with food. That particularly in the beginning of the pandemic, there was such a focus on stopping people panic buying. And it it meant that you felt more watched at times when you were in the supermarket and more self-conscious. And certainly for me, that was something I had to fight against, that I just had to focus on buying what I needed as opposed to then worrying about what everyone else might think of that. Yeah, no, and I completely agree that I went, um, normally I'm quite relaxed around food and kind of the types of food I have. Um, But I remember in the first week I went to buy some bread and they didn't have the bread that I normally get and ended up going to like four different supermarkets and got in like a real state about it. And I was like, this is ridiculous. If this wasn't all going on, I'd be totally chilled out about having a different loaf of bread. And actually since that day, I've had different bread and it's been fine. Yeah, like that fear around it was just so difficult to manage. And for me, I think a lot of that was then just having to go back to like the basics with recovery for a bit and just, I guess, be kind to myself in the sense that it didn't matter that I was having to go back to quite a strict routine and structure around things. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense because I think that links well back to the control element we often talk about with eating disorders and how a global pandemic like this can be such a threat to that. So something like you being knocked out of the routine of what you'd normally eat right down to the specifics, can be incredibly jarring. Yeah, and I think it's that thing, isn't it? As soon as you get that choice taken away, then you start to feel really trapped. Yeah. And then because someone else is dictating that, it then means that I felt, and for others, you probably feel like you have to then gain that control back in other ways. And I know for me, like with the eating disorder and like what you've touched on with the control aspect there, it definitely felt like that. And I think that's what's so frustrating is, and I have been able to kind of, battle it actually not kind of got back into bad habits but I know at first it was definitely kind of trying to be like oh if you calorie count then you'll be in control of this if you do this you'll be back in control and I had to really be like actually no that will not make me feel any better and keep reminding myself that actually if I got back into that space 
then it'd be harder to break. But actually also it never made me that happy. But I think it's so challenging when there's so much, when there is all this uncertainty going on in the world. And even people without eating disorders, there's this added pressure at the moment around food and exercise and dieting and putting on weight. And it's just like, it's just relentless everywhere you look, you're just seeing it. And I think, again, having to navigate that adds like another whole complication to it. I think that's very true because so often in the media we consume, how you look is linked to are you a successful and productive human Mm. or not? And right now that's kind of intensified because we're all trapped inside watching media more so and can be potentially more influenced. So if what you're seeing a lot on social media or on the TV is a lot of people exercising, then you may feel, oh, well, I need to be exercising. If I'm not exercising, I'm I'm failing lockdown and I'm not achieving anything. Mm. That could easily become very obsessive beyond just those people that have existing difficulties with food. Yeah. And I think for me with the whole exercise thing, like I do use exercise in a healthy way to manage my recovery. And I'm very mindful of what I'm doing and how much I go and stuff like that. But I think when I started kind of seeing every single day, like these constant like Instagram lives and all of this fitness stuff all the time, I found it really triggering because what it does for me is firstly, it makes me feel like I should be doing that much. The second thing is, is you're constantly looking at these kind of ideal perfect bodies as they would call them and you're feeling the pressure to look like that and the final thing is it then takes me back to this space that I was in when I was really unwell where I would be like trying to work out in my room secretly and gets you back in that kind of like I guess that like isolated part of your brain where you're like in your room not really enjoying the workout but feeling like you have to do it and I think, again, because people are doing that all the time at the moment and because people are not really doing anything else so they feel they have to place all of that sort of stuff, it is just this pressure all the time to be doing it. And I feel, I guess I feel lucky because I'm, although I found it challenging, I'm able to kind of, I guess, take a step back from it. But I think for a lot of people, it is really, really hard at the moment and hard to, yeah, navigate what you should and shouldn't be looking at online without feeling like you're missing out on stuff. Right, because that has become so much more integral to feeling connected and feeling less isolated. So then how do you balance that? Because what hasn't changed is we all still subconsciously want to put out the best version of ourselves online. We're aware of, you know, the judgment. We're aware of the eyes on our profile. And therefore, we want to come across a certain way. And Mm. Not only can that kind of tamper with our reality right now that we might be like putting up pictures of holidays we miss when we're looking our best whilst we've like not got out of bed all day. Like that can be quite jarring for the person posting it. But then everyone else seeing it, that's like, oh, they look so incredible. And it may not even be a picture now at all. Yeah, There's more pressure than ever to just fake your reality. Yeah, and I think there is. And I think what's really funny with that as well is you see people having like these whole social lives online, don't you? Around like constantly on like a Zoom call or on a Skype. And then again, you feel that pressure to be socializing all the time in the evenings. And sometimes you're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to be sociable tonight. But then you feel that again, that added pressure. And I think that at the moment is what's, is what's really risky. And people are so unsure about how to navigate the whole of that because None of us have ever had to do it before. 
Right. And I think there's a strange performative element to it that we're not really used to. That if you're so used to dealing with people face to face, and then suddenly all your communication is digital, then you Mm. find yourself worrying about like, how do I look and what camera angle is right for me? And it's a whole new level of self-consciousness that can lead you to start performing friendship rather than just having it. And, you know, maybe with your actual best friends, normally they'd come over and you'd just kind of sit around and maybe you wouldn't talk that much or maybe you'd watch TV together. And instead it's like, we're all feeling desperate to have these really productive, chatty chats and at a time when we kind of have less to say than ever. We're not really doing much to tell each other about. Yeah, it's so funny. My mum rings me so much more now than she ever used to. And every time she rings me, she like tries to think of stuff to say. (laughs) And then after like 10 minutes, she's like, I don't really have anything else to update you on. And I'm like, yeah, didn't like kind of guess that mum that we spoke yesterday. (laughs) Nothing else. And it's just, I think it is really funny, especially... Yeah, because I don't normally speak to my mum either that much. So it's quite interesting. But I guess it is, again, that pressure to constantly be communicating with each other because we're we're cut off from everything, which is hard. Yeah, it can be pretty exhausting, to be honest, having all these back-to-back phone calls. And certainly for me, I'm trying to not fall into the trap of just all my communication being telling my friends about other friends. (laughs) (laughs) I'm some kind of strange like COVID butler or something passing messages around (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it it can be easy to get too absorbed in these Mm. these online interactions and and really wear yourself out with them yeah and another thing you've reminded me of is not just feeling self-conscious when communicating and switching more to video chat with people but also I'm finding being around more and having less work to do. I'm more conscious of my body. I'm doing more analysis. Mm. I'm looking at myself more in the mirror. And so for me, from an eating disorder perspective, it's been less so the food side and more so the the kind of analysis and potentially the body dysmorphia type symptoms coming in that I've found challenging. Yeah. And you know what? I completely relate to that, I think, because although I don't, so I don't, I don't really look at myself in the mirror because I don't really like it. But what I have found is because I've been wearing kind of comfy clothes a lot and kind of hoodies and leggings a lot of the time, I think that's when it has a negative impact on my body image because I'm not really making the effort anymore with the body image angle. Like I feel less comfortable in myself at the moment. And then you have to then like battle it with that psychology aspect, don't you? To be like, actually, I don't probably look any different. Or the reason that I'm feeling really horrible in myself at the moment is because I've got all of these other feelings going on and emotions that I can't process properly. Yeah, I guess it's for me, it's been like trying to voice it. But it's so, it feels really difficult because we both know that with it, your brains completely distort everything. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about it with people, I don't think they fully understand it or people don't know how to respond. And to be perfectly honest, like I don't really know how I ever want people to respond to it when I talk about it. Right. If that makes sense. So it's a bit of a funny one. And I think for me, like what I probably should do is actually just start getting dressed properly, maybe a couple of times a week to then get me in that better kind of body image headspace. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I've been doing a bit of that trying to be as stubborn as I can be with my routine. And I think that's partly my personality. But it's also my way of coping and feeling like I'm less cut off and I'm more in control. 
that, you know, obviously things like the podcast, we're recording on the day that we normally record. My mm. counsellor, I still speak to her on the days I normally speak to her. I'm finding what parts of my schedule can stay the same. Yeah. And then, you know, trying to get dressed and get up and go to sleep as much as I can to normal schedule, although my sleep is quite all over the place. But as much as possible, trying to keep that routine. Yeah. But it's interesting as well what you said about knowing what to say to people. is so difficult when it comes to body image. That's one of the questions I get asked the most, actually. And I don't really have a clear answer for it either. Because a lot of people's instinct, if one of us was to say we've been struggling with our body image or we feel that we look more this way or that way, most people will default to being like, no, you look great. But it's still continuing a conversation mm. about how we look or they may know that their friend struggles with anorexia and so they'll try and compliment them more. But it's mm. just keeping the attention on on physical appearance, which at our worst times is the thing we're really trying to avoid thinking about. Yeah. And maybe like trying to find ways to move on to the emotions or other things. Mm. Yeah, without it sounding like dismissive, which I think is really hard, isn't it? The balance with that, because I know... Like if I ask someone how I look or whether I look like I've put on weight or if I'm concerned about something in my body, then sometimes if they dismiss it or they just go to something else, I think I'm like, oh my goodness, what I'm saying is right. Ah, uh, yeah. It's a weird one, isn't it? Body, right. I think bodies, particularly at the moment, because I feel like with all of this lockdown going on, like you said, like we've got so much more time to kind of scrutinise. But then at the same time, there's all this pressure on our bodies. So... There's all these memes on social media about how people are going to leave lockdown and be really overweight or how people are going to judge us on our weight when we finish lockdown. Like all of these ridiculous stuff that shouldn't even be a thing. But because you're seeing it and it's being broadcasted everywhere, again, that pressure being put back on the individual to try and manage their bodies. It's not done in a healthy or done in the right way either. It's so tricky. And I think there's a lot of that crossover that with there being such an intense focus on physical health right now, so much of that bleeds into mental health. Mm. And we feel that we need to be more active, perhaps on our health as a whole than ever before, at a time when things are changing. It's not normal. We can't be at the gym, like you've given the example of. We can't have a lot of elements of our usual healthy routine. Of course, that and other factors are going to lead to changes. For many of yeah. us, our weight will change. And that's not a reflection of us. That's far more likely a reflection of sitting at home more. Mm. But particularly when it comes to mental health, those that struggle, it can be so easy to internalise all of that. All the good things are coincidence and nothing to do with me. And then the bad things are all my fault. Yeah, that vicious cycle again, which we have so much more time to think about. <laughs> yeah, and, and easily get trapped in if we're not careful. Mm. And so are there any other things you're finding really helpful to manage all of this? So we talked about oh, we talked about routines. I think with social media, just like briefly, because we've talked about it quite a bit, it's just kind of being mindful of what I'm looking at online. So kind of limiting my social media time but also making sure that I've kind of unfollowed a load of fitness accounts and I'm like diversifying a little bit more of what I'm looking at just so that I've got like a bit more of a broad range of things as well. And then I think as well, I've got kind of firming up my support network around me. So I was doing therapy beforehand every three weeks, but I've now kind of gone back up to once every week 
and doing it remotely over the phone, which I think for me, keeping going with that was really, really important actually and having that consistency. I think at the moment, the reason why that's really helped me is because there is a lot of noise everywhere and there's so many people talking about how they're feeling and it's amazing because people are actually talking about how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, I think it means sometimes how you're feeling, you kind of just bury because you're trying to help everyone else. And also sometimes you might share something and then someone will come back and be like, oh, well, this is how I feel. This is what's really bad or whatever. I was finding definitely at the start of lockdown, it felt like people were competing over who had it worse. And I felt at that point, I was like, I need to talk to my therapist because actually I need to someone to just offload onto and somewhere that I can just really feel heard actually and have the space and to just feel like I'm not dealing with this on my own and things like that. So having that consistency actually has massively, massively helped me. And then I think like just on the general support, it's just about having people that I can just talk to. So if I'm having a bad day, like I'll always tell someone, it's important that we do that, particularly when we've had an eating disorder, because with the eating disorder, it tries to numb all of those emotions and those feelings that you don't really want to feel. And at the moment, there are so many emotions and feelings flying everywhere that if we don't tell people that we're not okay, what a lot of people may end up doing is then showing people they're not okay through not eating, through binging and purging, whatever it might be. And they'll go back to that kind of old unhealthy coping mechanism. So for me, just having that space again, just to kind of text people and say, I'm struggling today, is really, really helping actually. Yeah, and I think then also just like, I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment. So a lot of journaling which I love doing. But again, I think for me, that's just so important for my well-being and just having the space to do that. And I think as well, actually, one more thing, is that the other thing I've started doing, which is something that I was wanted to do for ages and was so rubbish at doing it, is every single day I say something that I'm grateful for. And some days I just don't feel like grateful for anything. But like having to find something for me really helps to get me in that better headspace. And I think particularly with my work and like when it started getting cancelled a lot and when I had so much more free time, like I just felt so lost that I didn't really know what I was going to do. So just starting to kind of do that gratitude stuff just always kind of set me up for the day a little bit better. And I think through doing that, it also helped me to then take a little bit of a step back and be like, actually, this is a really, really bad thing that's happening. It's really challenging and it's it's hard to deal with. But actually, there are some positives that are coming out of this. And for me, it was trying to just focus a little bit more on those positive things sometimes. Yeah, like not letting the, the kind of negativity always completely consume me, which is really hard to do. But it kind of, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Definitely. And that's really closely linked actually to what we've been trying to do with the podcast. And I guess like you've described, really double down on the coping mechanisms we had before, that Danielle and I stay productive because we find proactive ways to move through challenges. And Mm. that was the same before, and we're really making the most of that now. But no, those are some really great points. The only things I'd add is, one, on the social media side, it's really important, particularly now, to check in with how social media is affecting your emotions. Yeah. I've certainly found, particularly with Facebook, for whatever reason, that there are times when I'm going on it, particularly of an evening when I'm maybe sleepier or more emotionally vulnerable, and it's just making me feel sad or it's making me feel stressed. 
getting into the habit of checking in with, okay, how am I feeling when I'm a few minutes into the app? And then making a decision of staying or going based on that. That's a good idea, actually. Because there have been a few times that I just go down a rabbit hole of reading conspiracies about this all being a hoax. And it just makes me really frustrated with people that they're not taking it seriously. Or I just see loads of news articles which are true and they just stress me out. Or even just seeing a lot of friends struggling. And sometimes you just can't take that on. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing you've reminded me of with all this extra communication we're trying to engage in is that now can be a really great time to practice your listening skills that I've certainly found in a lot of my own relationships, particularly with other extroverts. We're really being impacted by the social limitations of this. And so a few of my friends, you can just tell that because they're not really listening like they normally would because they're just honestly happy to be speaking to someone and be having that interaction. And it can lead them to just kind of go off on one and just speak and speak and speak. And we can sort of all fall into that trap. But actually now with all this increased communication, it's a great time to practice your listening, as well as obviously expressing what's going on for you Mm. and build stronger relationships with people. Sure, I love that one. I hadn't actually thought of that at all. But it's so true, isn't it? Like, because when you're on a call now and when you're doing video stuff, you have to engage so much more because there's not other stuff going on. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think what this will do for a lot of people is maybe show the people that you're really close with and people that you're less close with or people that you want to spend time with because they've made the effort to stay in touch and things like that. For sure, yeah. (laughs) Which is a good point, but also sounds a little bit like a challenge. (laughs) Yeah, sounds a bit harsh. (laughs) (laughs) So we will wrap up there then. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough. <laughs>